Welcome everyone, I'm Emerson Green and today I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Cutter of Notre Dame about psychophysical harmony. We skip some of the basics of the argument, though we do take some time to lay down some essentials before moving into more interesting waters. We covered a few objections, some to the theistic answer to psychophysical harmony, some to the mystery of harmony generally, but we also skipped many of the bad objections to the argument, like evolution solves the problem entirely, or that this is just a god of the gaps argument, or that it commits some other informal fallacy that fatally undermines the argument. Dr. Dustin Crummett, Brian's co-author, was interviewed on this podcast and we had more time to cover that sort of ground and get into the weeds. And Dustin has also appeared on other channels where he does a great job providing a sort of intro to the argument. But today we're assuming some background knowledge of the topic. And we get to some new areas that I haven't seen explored in other conversations about this argument so far. We do begin where the argument often begins, with a presentation that assumes epiphenomenalism, before going on to say that this problem that so many people identify with epiphenomenalism is actually a problem even for those who go on to reject epiphenomenalism. We talk about physicalism and the supposed metaphysical impossibility of disharmony, the revenge problem, the path of least resistance, an objection related to divine hiddenness, the underdetermination of the evidence, natural teleology, and spooky naturalism. So let's get to it. Welcome everyone, I'm your host Emerson Green and my guest today is Dr. Brian Cutter. He's the co-author of a great paper called Psychophysical Harmony, A New Argument for Theism. And I interviewed your co-author, Dustin Crummett, a while back. So Dr. Cutter, would you tell us a little about your background and your interests? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, my name's Brian Cutter. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. I've been here since uh, fall of 2016. Uh, my main areas of research are uh, philosophy of mind and metaphysics. I guess I think of philosophy of mind as a sub-branch of metaphysics, but I also do some work in metaphysics outside of philosophy of mind. Um, and I have a strong side interest in philosophy of religion, and the, the paper you mentioned that I wrote with Justin Crummett is in uh, philosophy of religion. So let's start with like the big picture. Um, do you classify this as like a design argument? Uh, yeah, I think um, if, if we want to put it in uh, a broad box, it would it would qualify as a kind of teleological argument, a design argument. Uh, I think we initially played around with calling this the psychophysical fine-tuning argument, the thought being that just as the, there's the traditional cosmological fine-tuning argument, um, this is an argument of a broadly similar flavor, but focused on the psychophysical laws, suggesting that uh, the psychophysical laws are kind of fine-tuned to allow for a certain kind of valuable outcome, just as the physical laws are fine-tuned to allow for the outcome of life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to, to call this a, a design argument focused specifically on the psychophysical laws or the relationships between uh, physical states and phenomenal states. Cool. Now, I've always liked design arguments, like even as an atheist, like that's kind of the most interesting part of natural theology to me, way more than like contingency arguments or cosmological arguments. But um, anyway, so 
you know, psychophysical harmony is improbable, you know, like that's at least the contention and it's very valuable. So we've got this improbable, valuable thing. Um, so that's, you know, surprising on a totally indifferent universe hypothesis, you know, um, this very improbable, very valuable thing. It's, you know, surprising if the universe is totally indifferent. Um, and I guess I'm curious about like why that is exactly. Like, why do you think that disharmony is so much more probable um, I mean, it's obvious why disharmony would be, you know, disvaluable, I guess, and why harmony would be valuable. Um, mm -hmm. But why do you think that disharmony is like so much more probable than harmony? Uh, good. So some of this interacts with what your background views are on the metaphysics of mind. So in the in the paper, we start out by arguing that psychophysical harmony is is, is improbable. Uh, conditional on kind of naturalism together with epiphenomenalist dualism. So, um, so epiphenomenalist dualism, that's a conjunction of dualism, which is the view that uh, phenomenal states, that is states characterizing what it's like to be an individual at a time, are fully distinct from physical states. Um, so that, that's the, the dualism part of it. And then the epiphenomenal part of it is that uh, phenomenal states don't have any causal influence on what happens in the physical world. Um, so this is a version of dualism that is attractive to a number of kind of naturalistically minded philosophers. So two of the most prominent dualist philosophers uh, in, in the last few decades of, of analytic philosophy are David Chalmers and, uh, and Frank Jackson before he, uh, he apostatized to, to physicalism. Um, I back to the dark side. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, both of them, well, I mean, there's tons of qualifications, but both of them more or less accepted a kind of epiphenomenalist form of dualism. Um, and you can kind of think of this as um, kind of a, well, respecting, you, you might think of it as the best of both worlds, or you respect the main considerations on on each side of the physicalism versus dualism debate. So on the one hand, we have these powerful philosophical arguments from the possibility of zombies or the knowledge argument that seem to suggest that consciousness is not reducible to physical states or properties or processes. On the other hand, we seem to have scientific or empirical reason to think that um, all the kind of behavior and brain processes relevant to consciousness, they can be fully physically explained in terms of prior uh, purely physical events, or at least some people think that there's a lot of empirical evidence for that. And if you're an epiphenomenalist dualist, you can accept both of those. So when it comes to explaining my outward behavior, you're going to say that the, you can give a complete causal explanation of that in terms of, say, physical processes in my brain. Um, but you can still accept the kind of philosophical arguments that suggest that consciousness is irreducible to underlying physical states and processes. So, so it's a version of dualism that, that might be attractive attractive uh, to, to naturalistically minded philosophers and has been attracted to such philosophers. Yeah, um, and I would add that there are people who call themselves physicalists like on the internet who are actually epiphenomenalists and like they seem to like they'll describe their view and they'll call themselves a physicalist and then they'll even call themselves epiphenomenalists and then they're like yeah I'm a physicalist I'm an epiphenomenalist physicalist I'm like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> but yeah but, so I mean one one further distinction here is the substance dualism versus property dualism view. And maybe some of these thinkers are 
considering themselves physicalists because they don't accept substance dualism. Maybe they think that consciousness is like a non-physical property, but nonetheless inheres in physical substances or something like that. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe they're also just confused. I think uh, you're giving them too much credit. I think they're just yeah. confused. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay, so, so why is psychophysical harmony improbable if you accept naturalism and epiphenomenalist dualism? Well, here's the basic thought. Um, if you're a dualist, you think that there are fundamental psychophysical laws, that is, metaphysically contingent laws of nature that link physical states of your brain, for example, to states of consciousness. If you're an epiphenomenalist, you think that the direction of causation only goes in one direction. So physical states of your brain causally generate states of consciousness, but your states of consciousness don't kind of top-down influence the physical processes in your brain. Um, moreover, dualists standardly think that these psychophysical laws by which brain states give rise to states of consciousness, these are metaphysically contingent. Why think they're contingent? Well, you know, a, a standard line of argument for dualism uh, relies on the conceivability of variation in the phenomenal states while holding fixed the physical states. And then they typically appeal to some principle to the effect that conceivability is a guide to possibility. And so you get the metaphysical possibility of these scenarios where the phenomenal truths vary while you hold fixed the, the physical truths. Uh, so these kind of standard arguments for dualism are already committed um, uh, to, to to a metaphysically contingent link between physical truths and phenomenal truths. Uh, so, so that's gonna amount to metaphysical contingency in these basic psychophysical laws. Um, okay, but if these are metaphysically contingent, then there's gonna be other possible psychophysical laws that map our brain states onto different experiences, different states of consciousness. So for example, uh, there will be a possible world that's physically just like ours, but in situations where I experience pain, my counterpart experiences pleasure. And in situations where uh, I experience pleasure in the actual world, my counterpart in this counterfactual world uh, experiences pain. So a kind of pain-pleasure inversion scenarios. Now think about what's going on in this other possible world. Um, th this, you know, this other guy is uh, systematically pursuing pain, that is a state that he has objective reason to avoid, and he's systematically avoiding pleasure, that is a state that he has objective reason uh, to pursue. So there's, there's a kind of disharmony there. Um, now, our thought is there's vastly more ways of uh, there, there's vastly more psychophysical pairings or sets of psychophysical laws that would produce disharmony than there are that would produce harmony. So think of all the different ways of mapping physical states onto states of consciousness. There's, so there's one set of psychophysical laws that would uh, map every brain state onto kind of random static phenomenology. There's another set of physical laws that would map uh, brain states onto, you know, lukewarm bathwater phenomenology. Um, you know, there, there's there's psychophysical laws that would produce pain pleasure inversion, or you know, in situations where I experience pain, gives me kind of like bland gray phenomenology. So, so you know, the the vast vast majority of these psychophysical laws would not be harmonious in the ways that that our psychophysical laws actually are. Um, and so, given an indifferent universe, given that given a kind of naturalistic view where there's no um, benevolent or knowledgeable agent who created the universe. Um, it, it just seems 
really improbable that the psychophysical laws would be such as to produce psychophysical harmony. By contrast, that seems much more plausible uh, given theism, because given theism, the universe, its basic laws and structures were, crea were created by a being of perfect goodness, perfect knowledge, and perfect power. Um, such a being would have reason to produce psychophysical harmony, again here appealing to the value of psychophysical harmony. Psychophysical harmony seems like a necessary condition on having a kind of meaningful, valuable agency. So insofar as psychophysical harmony is a valuable state of affairs, you can see why God would have reason uh, to, to prefer it, to promote it. And that makes it not wildly improbable, not wildly surprising given theism, that the psychophysical laws would be uh, harmonious in this way, right? So the the thought is that like you know really anyone who thinks it's who thinks it's possible for these correlation patterns between like brain states and phenomenal states, anyone who thinks it's possible for these correlation patterns to vary is going to face some version of this problem. And since the vast majority of the probability space is um, occupied by like disharmonious states, um, not necessarily like pain, pleasure, inversion, but like correlations that are not rationally appropriate because that's what harmony is it's like a correlation pattern that sort of makes sense or you know it's like appropriately matched i guess so right. you know like disharmonious scenarios are far more numerous they occupy the majority of the probability space and at least some of them are intrinsically more probable because they're so simple um so yeah just sheer indifference would not really lead us to expect psychophysical harmony um yeah, so I, I think I follow that. It's just, um, I thought that I could, because you started off talking about epiphenomenalism, and I think a lot of people are familiar with some version of this argument that's like just tailored to epiphenomenalism. Like mm -hmm. William James has a famous argument against this, and like that was for a long time like my, the main reason I like wasn't an epiphenomenalist, other than it's just like very counterintuitive and weird, and it, it feels like my pain has something to do with me not wanting to do something. Um, right. Anyway, so I thought I could solve the problem by just being like, well, I believe in mental causation, you know, like, I think that my mental states have a causal impact on the world. Um, so that solves this whole, like, you know, I didn't call it like the problem of psychophysical harmony back then, but I thought like, oh, you know, that just, that gets rid of the whole issue. And I think some people still think that. And I've also heard some theists try to answer like, oh, well, that's why there's harmony in God's mind. Um, mm. They just try to in introduce some kind of causal impact between mental states and physical states but you know that's not really sufficient to explain why there's a harmonious causal relationship because there could be a causal relationship that's real but it's a disharmonious one where like you intend to do something and then it, you know the opposite happens or something like that so um you know and i should say that i'm kind of assuming people have seen the interview with dustin so we're not really going over like super basic stuff here so if people are kind of lost then just feel free to check out the previous interview with your co-author, Dustin Crummett. And Dustin has also done some some other interviews recently where I feel like he's kind of sharpened the presentation a little bit. Um, so if you're interested in getting more in the weeds, you know, the people listening, then definitely check out uh, my previous interview with Dustin. Um, but yeah, he was just on exploring reality and capturing Christianity, and I thought those were really helpful. Um, but just, you know, briefly, we should probably go over just like, what is psychophysical harmony and disharmony? Um, but yeah, do you, I mean, I really like this analogy from from Cameron from uh, Capturing Christianity, um, which is like a driver in a car. Did you happen to hear this? Uh, I I listened to some parts of that interview. That, that sounds vaguely familiar. 
Is yeah, it- I, I like it was a nice intuitive explanation, I thought, where it's like you're inside of a car and like there could be some causal relationship. Well, I mean, there is a causal relationship between like turning the steering wheel and then the car turning left, you know, but you could imagine like a disharmonious scenario where it's like you turn the wheel left and then the stereo turns on or something. And then yeah. you like, you know, try to hit the blinker and then the car turns right or something, you know, like there's not this appropriate connection or correlation between what the car does and like the controls inside the car. Um, so that would be like a disharmonious car, I guess, vehicular disharmony. Yeah. So there's countless conceivable ways in which uh, movements of the steering wheel could be causally hooked up to car behavior. Um, and I guess in this analogy, you could argue that only a small fraction of those would lead to uh, harmonious behavior. So it would still kind of cry out for explanation why 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 the causal links, given that they're there, are 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 there in a particularly harmonious way. One one way I like to think about this issue is, okay, so suppose you're you're still a dualist, but you're not an epiphenomenalist dualist. You're what philosophers call an interactionist dualist. So you think there's not just bottom-up, but also top-down causation. So states of consciousness physically, or states of consciousness causally influence processing in the brain, um, as well as physical states of the brain influencing your, your conscious experiences. Um, so on this kind of picture, you might say there's one brain state that leads to the experience of pain, and then that experience of pain, given the way the psychophysical laws are, that experience of, ba- of, of pain then top-down causally generates avoidance behavior. Okay, so that's an instance of psychophysical harmony. But wait a minute, there's another possible world where that nomological role that pain actually plays is instead played by pleasure. So a certain brain state causally generates pleasure, which then causes avoidance behavior. Now you have pleasure playing the the nomological role that's actually played by pain, and that's a disharmonious scenario. So, okay, so what does that case show? That case shows that it's possible to have interactionist dualism together with disharmony. But we can go further and say that actually the vast majority of uh, interactionist dualist schemes would lead to disharmony because you know it's not just pleasure that could play that nomological role you could also have you know lukewarm bathwater feeling playing that nomological role or any number of random static experiences playing that nomological role and all of those other scenarios where other kinds of experience play that nomological role you get disharmony and so you can argue kind of on similar grounds that the vast majority of interactionist psychophysical laws will lead to disharmony as well so 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 as we think of it the problem doesn't essentially rely on epiphenomenalism at all it's just kind of convenient for an initial presentation of the puzzle and of the argument to 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 assume epiphenomenalist dualism right yeah it, it took me a while to see that but um you know i started being convinced that this was like a really really good argument after i saw like oh man like every position in philosophy of mind is going to suffer from some version of this problem which I guess the, you know, the footnote to that is except for one, which is really implausible and rejected by almost everyone. But um, so there is one tiny group of weirdos who deny that like psychophysical disharmony is even conceivable or that anything like any sort of variation is conceivable. Um, That's very bizarre. And I guess we can, if we had more time, I would love to just go down every like philosophy of mind rabbit hole here. But, um, you know, so most physicalists will say that something like, philosophical zombies or like color inversion or whatever 
like, yeah, that's all conceivable, but it's metaphysically impossible. I just want to clarify, like, are there any exceptions to that? Like, that is what physicalists think, right? That, like, it's metaphysically necessary that the correlation patterns that we observe, like, just the, it's just necessary that those would obtain? Uh, yeah, that's that basically follows from standard physicalism. Yeah. So, okay, so most will grant that psychophysical harmony is like, or disharmony, rather, is conceivable or logical or epistemic possibility or whatever. And I, I'm not really sure what to say to those who won't, but I, I keep getting hung up on like this, like really weird part of physicalism, like just the weirdness of this view, this particular aspect of it, like really struck me a couple weeks ago, because I was talking to a physicalist friend about this argument. And I was saying like, you know, you don't think that disharmony is possible, you know, like there's no way that we could have woken up and found ourselves in like a disharmonious universe because you think that, you know, these things are necessary and something like, you know, zombies or inversions or any kind of disharmony or whatever, it would all, it's just all um, like literally not possible. <laughs> like it's metaphysically impossible. Even God couldn't have created a disharmonious world or like a color inversion world or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, so you don't even think it's possible? You know, why would you be that bothered by this problem? And he was convinced by your guys' like reasoning, like, oh, well, you still have this inference from like subjective probability and everything. And like, that's kind of enough to make the argument work. And, you know, we'll go through that chain of reasoning here in a moment because I do see that. But then I'm kind of of two minds on this where it does seem like if you think disharmony is not even possible, like it's metaphysically impossible, it makes me think like, well, why would you worry about it? You know, um, but I'm, it's, I'm trying to get to that question that I just asked you. But I keep tripping over the weirdness of believing that disharmony is metaphysically impossible and that like even God couldn't have created a disharmonious world if he wanted to. So the weirdness of physicalism aside, if you thought that it was metaphysically impossible for there to be disharmony, like why would you still be bothered by this problem? Good. So the move we make in the paper, um, and this is a subtler part of the argument than the part that relies on the assumption of epiphenomenalist dualism. But here's the basic idea. Um, the thought is the, the argument as we give it is a Bayesian argument that relies on epistemic probabilities distributed across epistemic possibilities. And because we're only dealing with epistemic probabilities and epistemic possibilities, it really doesn't matter what your views are on metaphysical modality. It really doesn't matter um, what, what, what your views are on the, meta, on the metaphysical modal status of these psychophysical correlations. Um, because as long as you're not one of these type A materialists, the, the, the type that thinks that these variations aren't even conceivable, as long as you think that there's an epistemic possibility wherein the physical truths are held fixed, but you vary the phenomenal, then there's still gonna be epistemic possibilities that are disharmonious. And we could ask, what should our, what should our kind of a priori credence distribution be over all of these epistemic possibilities? And the, the guiding idea here is, well, conditional upon naturalism, you should have a roughly indifferent credence distribution a priori over these different psychophysical pairings. We grant in a, let's let you know, we, we might think in advance, like whichever of these happens to be correct, it might well be metaphysically necessary. But merely knowing that whatever psychophysical correlation actually holds is necessary, that doesn't affect our credence distribution over them. Um, 
And so, is, is you know, is, as long as we're careful to distinguish epistemic probability and possibility from metaphysical, then I I, I think the, the argument goes through as before because the it's it's just a simple Bayesian argument. Uh, the the epistemic probability of finding psychophysical harmony conditional upon theism we think is you know not not wildly low the epistemic probability of of psychophysical harmony on uh on on atheism or, or basically naturalism is what is what our real target is here um is wildly low and so you know comparatively speaking it's just much more likely on theism epistemically speaking than it is on on atheism that we would find psychophysical harmony and that's that's true if you kind of think in advance that whatever uh whatever psychophysical patterns happen to hold may well hold of metaphysical necessity so here's here's an analogy um so you know take take cosmological fine-tuning of the laws. We find these constants that seem to be in a very narrow life-permitting range. Um, and, you know, someone someone could give a, a Bayesian argument uh, that for, for theism on the basis of this, without being uh, the, the, the probability that the constants would be in the life-permitting range given theism is, let's say, reasonably high or not terribly low. Uh, the, pro the epistemic probability that we'd find them in that range given atheism, let's say, is extremely low. And so the discovery of cosmological fine-tuning is significant evidence for theism over atheism. Okay, so let's let's bracket all sorts of complications having to do with the multiverse and self-locating evidence and, and, and all that stuff. Um, it, it just does not work. It, like, you, you cannot respond to this argument by saying, well, wait a minute, my view is that the laws of nature, whatever they turn out to be, are metaphysically necessary. That just doesn't touch the, epi the, the, the Bayesian argument for theism. Uh, the reason for that is, look, if we wanna know how should we a priori distribute our credence, uh, our, our, our credences uh, across different possible hypotheses about what the laws are, what the constant values are, merely knowing that whatever those constant values happen to be are necessary, is doesn't tell you how to how to divide your credences across them. Um, it, 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 it arguably provides no guidance at all. So the the rational way of distributing your credence across these different possible constant values or different conceivable constant values is arguably going to be the same regardless of what you think about the the modal status, the metaphysical modal status of the laws or the values of these constants. And given that that's the case, the, the Bayesian reasoning will go through just as before. Now you could say, well, wait a minute, we've discovered that the, the, the constants fall within this very, very narrow life permitting range. So what my view is, is that um, the, the laws with these very specific constant values, those are metaphysically necessary. And now that's a view that really does predict fine tuning. Um, and it's compatible with naturalism. But the problem is that view is going to have a wildly low prior probability because if it, it you know the 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 a priori prior probability over all these different possibilities will be relatively indifferent across all the different constant values. And now if you take the the narrow range that happens to be life permitting, um, that that's going to have a very, very, very low prior probability. So it's true you've got a view that, 
predicts the data. Um, but in comparison with the prior probability of, of theism, you're going to have a view that's much lower at the level of the priors. So even after we, even though it does perfectly well predicting the data, after we uh, after we take account of the data of, of cosmological fine tuning, theism is going to come out ahead, at least given all these assumptions that, that, that I'm taking for granted about what the priors look like. So, so I, I just think, you know, the, the, the questions about uh, the, the, the metaphysical or modal status of these psychophysical correlations, in a way, they don't touch the Bayesian argument because that is just concerned with epistemic probabilities over epistemic possibilities. Yeah, I, I think that me and my audience are, are not the best audience for that particular analogy. Like, oh, well, you know, just take a look at the fine-tuning argument. It's like, well, I, you know, I have, like, issues with the fine-tuning argument. I assume that people in my audience do as well. Um, but the thing that, see, this brings me to another beef, because the thing that really made me get this was in, like, the draft version of your paper, um, there was this example with Spinoza and necess necessitarianism. Mm -hmm. made it perfectly clear it's a great example and then some reviewer and now it's not in there anymore right because of like some reviewer isn't that what happened some reviewer was like really unhappy with it and then it got taken out oh um, it's not in the final version i thought the spinoza example was in it i i i'll double check on that because i like that example too you're talking about the, the, the thing we're talking about now where it's like oh it's just it's necessary and it's like but there's an arrangement of stars in the sky that says like you know it's like a bible verse in like 50 different languages or something yeah and like necessitarianism doesn't undermine i'm pretty sure because i downloaded the paper from the phil papers website and it like wasn't in there from what i remember but i have you, the you, other version and it was in that like pre-version you might be right i'll have to double check on that if we took it out it's probably it's probably because we thought that the same points were essentially made by some of the new material we added in response to the reviewers, the kind of the Hesperus phosphorus case. Um, we're going to have to but, straighten this out because yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Dustin told me that it was taken out in response to like a reviewer being unhappy with something about it. But anyway, that's what yeah. I thought happened. But you might be right. I'm pretty sure it's not in the final paper. And um, I really was unhappy with that because I loved the example and it actually did like it perfectly makes the point that you're trying to make here where it's like, hey, say that we looked up in the sky or we like looked through a telescope and we saw, you know, I'm the alpha and the omega or something or some Bible verse or something, mm -hmm. you know, in written in the stars in 50 different languages. And then you say, well, as it turns out, I'm a necessitarian. So I think yeah. that that arrangement was necessary. And it's like, okay, well, like, even if you think that, like, this, the arrangement of stars conceivably could have varied. So it doesn't change, you know, the probability, like, epistemically. And like, you know, like you said, all these other, like, you know, seemingly kind of complicated issues about, like, modality and probability aside, like, do you really think that that wouldn't be evident? Yeah. For like the yeah. So maybe that's a more clear-cut example than these, and in, in less tendentious than the the fine-tuning case, at least for your audience. Yeah. I mean, because that that's a case where it's just obvious that that would be spectacular evidence for theism. And if you have some objection to my argument that implies that that wouldn't be spectacular evidence for theism, then there's clearly something confused about the objection. I guess that that, that exactly. would be. A straightforward way of putting the point. Exactly. So 
even if you're a physicalist and you think that like, hey, disharmony is metaphysically impossible, you know, it couldn't have happened. Even God couldn't have made it, which again is a very odd view to me. But even if you think that, it doesn't actually um, undermine the argument. But um, something that might undermine the argument that is it's become like sort of a popular objection to this, you know, as people have started talking about this um, argument is the revenge problem. So like to go back to the driver analogy, you know, just having a causal impact on what the car does or having a, the mental having a causal impact on the physical doesn't solve the problem since, you know, you could turn the wheel left and it turns on the stereo. You try to turn the wipers on and like the wheels start vibrating, you know, like there could be disharmony, you know, here, just like a causal impact is insufficient. So turning to God's mind, we could ask why his will and intentions and desires and creative activities are harmoniously related. So God said, let there be light. And there was light, you know, there was not like Beethoven or root yeah. beer or, um, you know, whatever. Yeah. So um, I'm curious what you think about the possibility of disharmony in God's mind. Like, you know, obviously, like I, I would think that disharmony is a form of imperfection and God's nature as a perfect being would rule it out. But, you know, I've heard others try to appeal to omnipotence and that doesn't make any sense to me because it seems to like presuppose the harmony that we're trying to explain. Um, cause like his yeah. will is producing like the intended outcomes or something. Um, so yeah, what, what do you think about like the possibility of disharmony in God's mind? Yeah, good. So first thing I'll say just by way of caveat is I, I haven't thought a ton about this issue. I mean, I'm, I'm aware that it's been raised out there. It's, it's funny that you described this as one of the popular objections to the argument. The, I mean, the, the paper is not even published yet, but I, I guess that it has generated a bit of discussion and Dustin has, has, has discussed it in a number of venues. Um, so so I, I, I'm glad that it's it's uh, discussed enough that there are even are popular objections <laughs> to it. Um, and yeah, it's a natural line of objection just because the hypothesis of theism is a hypothesis that entails that there is a certain kind of mind at the foundation of reality. And then when you spell out the details, uh, it would seem to imply that that's a mind that exhibits psychophysical harmony of some kind. And if, if we're thinking, look, where and when we find psychophysical harmony that calls out for explanation, our explanation is God, but then what would explain the psychophysical harmony within the divine mind? So yeah, so that's um, an interesting line of response. I guess my my initial thought is this might be a reason why it's a good thing that we argued in a kind of Bayesian way rather than as an inference to the best explanation. So let me kind of explain that. So there's there's a variation on our argument that we could have given. This is not this is not the way we actually presented the argument, but it's it would be a natural variant which says psychophysical harmony. It's special. It's valuable. Absent some kind of explanation, it seems really improbable. So it cries out for explanation. It's not the sort of thing that we should just leave as a brute unexplained fact. Um, what's the explanation? And then we could argue that God provides the best explanation. Um, that's that. That's not how we argued. Instead, we gave a Bayesian argument. We said, you know, the epistemic probability of, of psychophysical harmony conditional on theism is much, much higher than the probability of psychophysical harmony conditional upon naturalism. Therefore, we have some Bayesian evidence for theism over naturalism. Um, and then part of our presentation of the Bayesian argument was that 
theism is not intrinsically extremely improbable. Because, I mean, if, if theism were intrinsically very, very, very improbable, then even if it does a good job predicting the data of psychophysical harmony, it still could be that we shouldn't take it seriously at the end of the day. And so, uh, we, you know, we, there's there's a couple paragraphs where we argue that no, theism is 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 intrinsically not not wildly improbable. Um, now, I kind I, I'm kind of thinking that that should be enough to stave off this particular worry. So I guess I guess my thought is. Look, we've argued that there's a hypothesis, namely theism, that's that's uh, not, not it's you know reasonably intrinsically probable, and then it gets a probability boost from predicting this data of psychophysical harmony within within the, the natural world. Um, and now you say, well, look, your hypothesis implies that there's a god whose mind exhibits psychophysical harmony, but I mean that. That, that seems like it's neither here nor there. I mean, if, if we're right about everything we, we've said, then um, theism, uh, you know, that, that, that's intrinsically reasonably probable. It's made more probable by this, this data. It entails that, and this goes to your point, that if, if, if God is a perfect being, then, and, and psychophysical disharmony is a form of imperfection, then... Mm -hmm psychophysical disharmony within the divine mind would just be ruled out by the very hypothesis of theism. Um, we, we've, we've argued that there's a good case for a proposition that entails that there's no disharmony within the divine mind. That's why we think there's no disharmony within the divine mind. You could say that's an explanation for why there's no disharmony within God's mind. I'm not really sure what the rules are for when when an argument counts as an explanation, that, that can be a little bit murky, a little bit obscure. Uh, I guess if you put it in explanatory terms, you would say there's there's the divine essence, which uh, which which includes the fact that God has all perfections, or God is absolutely perfect, or something along those lines. And then perfection entails the lack of disharmony. Um, that that feels to me pretty empty as an explanation, but I would prefer to put the point in kind of explanation neutral terms. I mean, when you when you formulate everything in Bayesian terms, you don't need to say like which facts cry out for explanation and what counts as a good explanation and which facts it's okay to leave unexplained. I, I find all those notions just kind of very hard to grapple with. I, I never know what the rules should be. Whereas framing some of these arguments in Bayesian terms, it seems to me to cut through a lot of those difficulties. I see. So just so I understand, in the Bayesian framework, you can kind of just stipulate that we're comparing X and Y models. And that's just what it means to have, you know, this particular theistic model. Like, you know, disharmony is just to say that we're not talking about perfect being theism or whatever, or, you know, even, I don't even know if you'd have to say perfect being theism, but like, you know, really just like any kind of theism. Um, once you're talking about theism, then, you know, there is no disharmony like that's just entailed by the fact that you're talking about theism so is that sort of what's going on here like you've got well, these two it, models that you're comparing and like it's just contrary to the model that you're talking about um yeah I, so, so, so it's a bit like that i mean i i don't want to issue any rules about how, how to use the word theism the way we use the word theism 
is you know just just the hypothesis that there's a being of perfect power goodness and knowledge and theism understood in that way does seem to entail the absence of of psychophysical disharmony um, right. so i mean you know maybe you could use it in a, a different way where psychophysical disharmony was was left open um and yeah our, our claim was just that theism understood in the way that we stipulatively define it is reasonably intrinsically probable uh, and psychophysical harmony is significant evidence for for it and maybe there's you know so you know you could ask why given that there's a perfect being then you know that entails that there's no disharmony but why is there a perfect being that's something that i think probably just doesn't have an explanation explanation needs to end somewhere uh, I, I suspect the theist should say that the, the fact that should be taken as brute is that there's a being with all perfections or that there's a perfect being or something along those lines. Uh, every that, view or most views are going to have to take some fact as brute. That seems like a reasonably plausible fact to take as brute because it seems intrinsically reasonably probable and predicts the kind of data about the kind of world we, we live in empirically reasonably well. There, there's going to be some brute existence in reality, um, or at least, yeah, that, 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 that seems plausible. The question is the nature of that brute existence. Is it something godlike? Is it something like the physical universe? Is it something altogether different from either of those two things? So yeah. that's that part is going to be, you know, more contentious, but it shouldn't be contentious, like just in the framing of like the argument, right? Like, you know, it might seem unsatisfying that it's like, hey, we're just comparing these two models and this data is more uh, expected on this model than this other model. And it's like, you might ask some more fundamental question, but it's like, that's going beyond the scope of the argument. So like, regardless of, you know, whether or not that's satisfying, that is like legitimate in the, in the like arena of like Bayesian argumentation, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. But, um, you know, regardless of, you know, the rules of like, theory comparison or Bayesian probability weighing or what have you like I mean it seems like anyone would want a deeper explanation of you know harmony in the divine mind so I mean do you think there's any way that we could reason our way to harmony in God's mind in a way that doesn't like consequently remove the mystery of psychophysical harmony in general well do you think there's anything wrong with just saying that God's essence is to be perfect or to have all perfections, and that that entails, you know, you know that that entails no defects. Psychophysical disharmony would be a defect. That's that's the explanation for it. Um, I mean, I totally accept that some things are just going to be brute, but um, I I similarly don't know what the rules are for what cries out for explanation or doesn't. But like some things about God, like. I just don't really see how um, it's like, oh, this is a good place to end. It's like, no, I would like an explanation of that, like if possible. Um, it seems like, you know, you know, arguably any candidate for like where explanation comes to an end is going to seem weird, but mm -hmm. it does seem like some places are weirder than others or like less plausible than others. And I feel like someone who's more optimistic, like they might try to argue from like some really neutral basic principles all the way to perfection so like maybe you could start with like some psr type principle and then get to a necessary being 
you know, argue from like arbitrary limits and be like, oh, well, you know, this shouldn't have any arbitrary limitations. So it needs to be a necessary being of like unlimited power or something. And you yeah. can make Swinburne's argument like, oh, omnipotence entails some of these other divine attributes, um, including perfection, maybe. So you could start with like, you know, sort of neutral explanatory principles or something or like a PSR type thing. And then you could potentially move all the way to perfection. And then it's like, look, I've got a deeper explanation of perfection and perfection entails no disharmony. So like, it doesn't have to be the place where explanation comes to an end. You could, it's all, it's going to be contentious. You know, every step of that is going to be like difficult, but as long as it is like, you know, reasonable, then you could say like, oh, theists are a little better off with like the revenge problem. We don't just posit like brute perfection or something. It's like, mm -hmm. no, there is a deeper explanation of perfection. Whereas like the naturalist, the non-theist is going to have to either posit some kind of harmony as brute or whatever explains harmony, like, you know, natural teleology, like, okay, there's the brute fact, like, there's where it ends. No. Yeah, so I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of these moves. I mean, you were referencing some of the moves that Swinburne makes and the desirability of not having arbitrary limits. And, and I mean, I, I, I find those arguments reasonably powerful, but it's often unclear whether they're giving explanations for why God has these attributes rather than merely just reasons to think that the, the the you know the fundamental being would have these attributes and and it's yeah it's often just very obscure what the order of explanation is or the direction of explanatory priority so you know take take these arguments that suggest okay there's we we've we've done a, our stage one argument our stage one cosmological argument so we we've got that there's some necessary causally efficacious being. Um, and now we want to argue, okay, well, if it's a necessary being and it has its attributes necessarily, well, the 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 realm of the necessary is the realm of the non-arbitrary. So we shouldn't have arbitrary limits in, in the features of this entity. And we know that it has some power because it's it's kind of like the causal source of everything else. And so that gives us reason to think that it has unlimited power. So now we, now we have something like omnipotence. And then there's these arguments like, well, in order to be omnipotent, you've got to know, you've got to be omniscient. You've got to know lots of stuff because if you don't know what the effects of your actions are, you don't, like, you, you don't have perfect control. You don't have full omnipotence. And so, um, so, so now, uh, now we we've got some something like omniscience, and then once you're omniscient, uh, you know the objective, necessary moral truths, and then given a kind of motivational internalism, you're motivated by the moral truths, and and, and so then and then you can get a kind of beneficence, and maybe you can ramp that up to to omni uh, omni benevolence. And I think a lot of those arguments are pretty clever, and and they they do take us some way towards a. A kind of going from like a mere necessary causally efficacious being to something that looks a bit more godlike. But it's often unclear in those arguments whether you're giving an explanation for why God is, say, omniscient or merely a kind of epistemic derivation. If you know that God is uh, omnipotent, then here's why he's got to be omniscient as well. Um, I'm not saying that there's not an explanation there. I just, I, I, I find explanatory notions kind of hard to get a get a grip on, um, especially in these really fundamental, these yeah. really fundamental domains. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to be clear, I would be pretty skeptical of like each one of those steps. I'm just trying to imagine like a pathway where theists could have some kind of explanation of harmony in the divine mind or, or something, just 
other than you know something other than just saying like oh, it's just a brute fact like you know maybe some ambitious theist could try to juice up either like every one of those little steps you know i don't know i'm like i said i'm pretty skeptical of of each of those steps but i don't know yeah. I, was trying, I was putting my theist hat on and trying to be like how how might i answer this you know yeah so so as i've said it's it's not an issue i've given a huge amount of thought to um in it's I'm, I'm probably unaware of most of the discussions of this issue that that have that exists on the internet um it's something i'll think about more and maybe i'll talk with with dustin about it and if we if we think of something uh, worthwhile to say maybe we'll write a successor paper trying to address the revenge problem i i think it's it's, it's definitely something worth worth thinking about and potentially writing about he um i know he hates this objection because he thinks it's like it just trivially follows from theism that there's no disharmony it's like yeah you know i can see that but then someone might just be like haven't you just you know pushed it one step back like how do you explain you know if if harmony is this great mystery it seems kind of arbitrary to be like well it's a great mystery here but like not there and i think he does have some kind of explanation for like well there's a difference like it's it's more intrinsically probable in god's mind than it is in like human minds or, or something like that along those lines yeah this again i think is the advantage of the bayesian formulation because we would get in trouble if we wanted to say wherever there's psychophysical harmony it needs to be explained by something else then mm. then there's a revenge problem or a regress i see so that's why the inference of the best explanation thing would kind of be problematic there because you'd be invoking what you just said like oh wherever there's psychophysical harmony it cries out for an explanation but that's not what that's not really what you're defending yeah i mean that that's at least not how we formulate the argument you know just like a cosmological argument that says everything has a cause is going to invite the response okay but what caused god um but but not every not every formulation of the cosmological argument will invite that response it just depends on how it's formulated <laughs> So another um, objection I've seen crop up a few times is sort of the path of least resistance objection, where mm. some people will talk about psychophysical disharmony as if it would have been harder for there to be disharmony. Like psychophysical harmony was like the path of least resistance, almost like someone or something would have to go to the trouble of making psychophysical disharmony. And, mm. you know, the default state would just be harmony. Um, so like what i mean it's not super well defined but like what do you think about this reaction to psychophysical harmony that would be like you know it's just easier for there to be harmony i guess i i find it a little bit hard to understand i mean if we're we're, we're looking at all of these metaphysical possibilities a few of them satisfy psychophysical harmony most of them don't on some you know very natural measure over the this space of possibilities and someone's saying that it was easier to find ourselves in 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 this small set of worlds where psychophysical harmony obtains 
I guess yeah, I would just so want, like want a, to see that spelled out. Like what, what does the, the easiness consist in? I mean, there is this idea that there's some, it's like objectively more probable that we would find ourselves in a simpler world than in a more complex world. And this is what justifies the use of Occam's razor in, in, our, uh, in our empirical reasoning and so forth. And maybe that's right. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that idea, but we argue in the paper that, well, it, it, it's not just that most of the sets of psychophysical laws would be disharmonious. It seems like the simplest psychophysical laws would be disharmonious. So here there, there needs to be some sense in which like it's easier for a certain world to be actualized where that doesn't track mere simplicity of the laws. Yeah, I mean, like what you try to argue in the paper is like, hey, disharmony is intrinsically more probable because it's simpler and like it occupies like almost all the probability space. So it's the exact opposite, like someone or something has to go to the trouble of making psychophysical harmony. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's just so natural to think that like, well, yeah, there's a rationally appropriate matching between our physical states and our phenomenal states, because why wouldn't there be like something would have to go in and intervene and be like, no, now it's disharmonious. So I, I don't know what it is in in me and in other people that like, yeah, it, it seems it's almost weird to be puzzled by psychophysical harmony, I think is the objection, because it's like, oh, it's, you know, the default state. Of course, there's a rationally appropriate matching um, between these things. But I don't know. It seems like, a, like I said, that they're appealing to some sort of like path of least resistance and they're saying this is it. But I feel like that's where the work is because you're not denying that you know you're not like denying the path of least resistance is some like vague principle you're like no it's just the path of least resistance is like disharmony yeah i i, I guess that's that's how i would think of it um yeah the, the path of least resistance is the path that corresponds to the vast majority of possible laws maybe giving some weight to the simpler laws than than the more complex laws that's that, that, that's what I would think we would get absent special intervention. I mean, there's a way in which like, well, you know, maybe you think there's, there's some fundamental force of reality biasing the universe towards rationally appropriate matches between phenomenal and, and, and physical states. Now, if you don't want to think of God as playing the role of that biasing force, then then the view looks a little bit like kind of John Leslie style axiarchism, where it's a kind of fundamental explanatory principle um, that thing, things are the way they are because it's good that they be that way. That I mean, that's a vision of reality that sometimes I find coherent. And if that's your vision of reality, then I think you, you've vindicated the idea that um, that the path of least resistance is a path leading to psychophysical harmony. Hmm. But that's that that's a kind of that's one of the views we call theism adjacent. And in in the mm -hmm. paper, we just say we're not concerned to argue for theism over and above these theism adjacent views, like John Leslie's axiarchism or like Thomas Nagel's kind of teleological uh, view of, of the natural laws. Um, the, these are all in the kind of anti-naturalist camp that, that we treat as um, kind of on, on our team for the, for the purposes of the argument. Of course, at the end of the day, um, if you're convinced that naturalism is false on the basis of our argument, then you, we're going to want to fight it out. Like, okay, is it theism or is it axiarchism or is it one of these other views? And that, that's just a further debate to be had.
Yeah. And, and I'm happy to, you know, adopt your guys's like stipulative use of naturalism there. Like, even though I do kind of consider myself a naturalist, it's just like, I have a much more like liberal inclusive, like view of naturalism where I do adopt these like kind of spooky ish positions like Nagel's natural teleology, but I'm okay. still just happy to think of myself as a naturalist. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm totally with like what you guys call, what do you call it again? Like the more standard forms of naturalism or something along those lines in the paper? I think we say standard, standard naturalism. Or... Yeah, I mean, people roughly know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, I, I didn't believe that anyway, honestly. So I'm like, I'm with one of these theism adjacent hypotheses, which okay, yeah. I don't feel very theism adjacent, but, you know, apparently that's the, <laughs> the yeah. view that I hold. But I mean, no, rel I, relative to, I don't know, the sociological breakdown of analytic philosophy, there's, there's not a lot of people in the kind of Nagel zone where you reject <laughs> theism, uh, but, but you don't accept what we're calling standard naturalism. No, I live in the Nagel zone. But um, yeah, so I wish we could keep talking about that. And for anyone who wants to see that pursued, you talked about this with Philip Goff recently. And sure. um, I loved that conversation. Um, yeah, he's I in want... the Nagel zone too. <laughs> he also <laughs> right. lives in the Nagel zone. Um, yeah, but you guys had a great conversation about that. And I'm hosting a conversation between um, Dustin and Philip about this exact issue about like, you know, okay, so psychophysical harmony, like, everyone here agrees this is a good argument you know but like you say in the paper the data is kind of underdetermined like they're it's equally supportive of like multiple hypotheses so we have to decide between those on other grounds um okay well you know let's take a stab at doing that um you know and i would love to have you on again too to do the same thing because like you know I, like this is ultimately where it goes for me where i'm just like okay i have to decide between you know this like you know handful of views that do a good job of explaining psychophysical harmony i was already kind of in this camp anyway of like natural teleology and stuff um but you know this is also good evidence for theism i just i have these other independent reasons for thinking theism is implausible like um hiddenness and teleological evil like in particular predation and that sort of thing and you know uh religious diversity and disagreement on issues that really matter you think if god like cared about us he would want to clarify these things um you know, so I have these independent reasons for not really being a theist, and then there's this really good argument for theism. So anyway, it's it seems like if I'm being reasonable here, I should still be willing to consider like, hey, maybe this is good evidence. This is good evidence for theism. I just don't think it like overwhelms these other things. So that's why I'm going down this like, you know, uh, pathway of uh, theism adjacent hypotheses. But I shouldn't be like totally closed off to theism. Yeah, that that all seems right. I mean, I think. I think that's that's the correct response to our argument considered just just by itself um yeah yeah and i know you have to go here in just a minute so i just wanted to ask you like one more uh bonus sure. question here before you head out um yeah. so do god's reasons for hiddenness you know whatever they are place any hard limits on how good this evidence can be like, if it's too strong, then you could say it undermines God's hiddenness, you know? So if it's completely unreasonable to deny theism in the face of this evidence, then, you know, how is God hidden anymore? So mm -hmm. do you think that that's like a consideration, like, oh, God's, God has reasons for hiddenness. So does that place some kind of ceiling on, like, how good of evidence psychophysical harmony can be? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. I guess that that question could be raised for any putative argument for for theism it could um, yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it would depend on, I mean, I guess one response to the hiddenness problem is God just isn't very hidden um, because there are all these great arguments. Um, I, I'm not inclined to respond to the hidden the hiddenness argument in in that way. I mean, I, I guess one way of of reconciling hiddenness with the with the view that our argument is just a complete slam dunk is that which I I, I guess I probably wouldn't use that language for our argument. I think it's interesting and suggestive, but um, but maybe not much stronger than that. But you know, suppose you did think that our argument was a complete slam dunk and you thought God was hidden. How could you reconcile those? Well, you could say that, um, yeah, um, the, the argument requires a pretty high degree of philosophical sophistication to even understand. And by the way, it was it's not even published yet. So at least people living before I uploaded it onto fill papers wouldn't have had, have, had, have had access to this. I mean, of course, other people have thought ideas in the vicinity, but maybe they haven't put two and two together. Um, but uh, so, you know, people who can't follow the arguments very clearly, which is presumably like mo most people, you need some degree of philosophical training in order to understand the paper. Um, mm -hmm. there, there could still be a degree of hiddenness there. Um, there, you know, there could still be kind of higher order hiddenness. You understand the argument, you find it plausible, but it's, it's a complex philosophical argument and how much should we trust our reasoning when it comes to complex philosophical matters? This is a kind of, this, this is a domain where plausible seeming arguments go wrong all the time. Philosophy is not not a field that commands consensus a lot. Um, so maybe there's there's grounds for higher order uncertainty whenever you find yourself uh, convinced by a purely philosophical argument of some antecedently, some, some conclusion that you find kind of surprising. Um, and then add to that the fact, and, and maybe this is the biggest point here, um, you know, our argument, as we say, it doesn't directly support theism as such. It mainly just rules out what we call standard naturalism. So you could accept our argument, but still be unsure whether God exists because you're unsure whether to accept theism or Nagel's view or axiarchism or whatever. Um, so, so even if you're totally on board with our argument and you think it's a slam dunk for what it purports to show, there's, there's, there's still some room for uncertainty about theism proper. Yeah, and I, I guess just, this is something I forgot to mention early on, and it's always worth mentioning, is just that this is not an argument that you and Dustin, like, came up with exactly. Like, there were people talking about psychophysical harmony before, many of them atheists, and, you know, so this is, I just, I wish I would have remembered to say this early on, because, yeah. you know, there are certain types of people who just reflexively, you know, are defensive about any attack on their worldview, so they're just like, this is a made-up problem, you guys are just like, you know, something like that, they're going to question, like, even the, uh, like, data that we're trying to explain. It's like, we, people were already talking about this, like, atheists were already talking about psychophysical harmony and disharmony. Um, and they also even mentioned, like, oh, yeah, if, if there was a benevolent God, then, like, you know, that might answer yeah. it. So it's like, the, the problem and this particular solution, like, had already been mentioned. It's just nobody was presenting it seriously and actually doing, like, a careful, you know, argument for it. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, you know, this is not something that, like, 
only people with like a theistic agenda came up with and then yeah so so we did not we did not come up with the problem of psychophysical harmony other people have noticed that problem and we did not come up with the idea that god could provide an explanation or a solution to the problem other people have suggested that but usually when they suggest that they're totally dismissive of it you know for for whatever independent reasons they they have for being dismissive of of theism or other religious views um yeah our, our contribution is to take seriously the the idea maybe this really does provide significant reason to accept theism or something like theism but then in addition to that i guess our contribution is to argue that you because because a lot of prior presentations of the problem suggest that it's only a problem for epiphenomenalist dualism or only a problem for some narrow range of views in the metaphysics of mind and one one thing we do in our paper is just argue like no basically for anyone who's not a so-called type a materialist uh there's there's a problem here um so you know that's one one contribution i guess i guess that's that, that's the main thing yeah and I wish we had more time. I could talk to you for another two hours about this argument, um, but I know that you do have to go. So um, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on and taking the time to uh, to share your knowledge. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back anytime to talk about. We didn't even get to talk about dualism. Um, oh yeah. Well, but, we should do that sometime. Maybe a separate episode. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Brian Cutter, thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. <laughs>